0: Chapter Twelve of The Black Bag This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by William Tomko. The Black Bag by Louis Joseph Vance. Chapter Twelve Picaresque Passages. Contradictory to the hopeful prognosis of Captain Stryker, his unaccredited passenger was not better when, after a period of oblivious rest-indefinite induration, he awoke. His subsequent assumption of listless resignation, of pacific acquiescence in the dictates of his destiny, was purely deceptive. Thin ice of despair over profound depths of exasperated rebellion. Blank darkness enveloped him when first he opened eyes to wonder. Then, gradually, as he stared, piecing together unassorted memories and striving to quicken drowsy wits, he became aware of a glimmer that waxed and waned, a bar of pale bluish light striking across the gloom above his couch, and, by dint of puzzling, divined that this had access by a port. Turning his head upon a stiff and unyielding pillow, he could discern a streak of saffron light lining the sill of a doorway near by his side. The one phenomenon taken with the other confirmed a theretofore somewhat hazy impression that his dreams were dignified by a foundation of fact, that, in brief, he was occupying a cabin bunk aboard the good ship Alethea. Overhead, on the deck, a heavy thumping of hurrying feet awoke him to keener perceptiveness, Judging from the incessant rolling and pitching of the brigantine, the crashing thunder of seas upon her sides, the eldritch shrieking of the gale, as well as from the chorused groans and plaints of each individual bolt and timber in the frail fabric that housed his fortunes, the wind had strengthened materially during the hours of forgetfulness, however many the latter might have been. He believed, however, that he had slept long, deeply and exhaustively, He felt now a little emaciated mentally, and somewhat absent-bodied. So he put it to himself. A numb languor, not unpleasant, held him passively supine, the while he gave himself over to speculative thought. A wild night, certainly, probably. By that time, the little vessel was in the middle of the North Sea, bound for Antwerp. "'Oh!' said Kirkwood vindictively, "'Hell!' So he was bound for Antwerp. The first color of resentment ebbing from his thoughts left him rather interested than excited by the prospect. He found that he was neither pleased nor displeased. He presumed that it would be no more difficult to raise money on personal belongings in Antwerp than anywhere else. It has been observed that the first flower of civilization is the rum-blossom. The next, the conventionalized fleur-de-lis of the money-lender. There would be pawn shops, then, in Antwerp, and Kirkwood was confident that the sale or pledge of his signet ring, scarf-pin, match-box, and cigar-case would provide him with money enough for a return to London by third class at the worst. There, well, all events were on the knees of the gods. He'd squirm out of his troubles somehow." as for the other matter-the calendar affair he presumed he was well rid of it with a sigh of regret it had been a most enticing mystery you know and the woman in the case was extraordinary to say the least the memory of dorothy calendar made him sigh again-this time more violently a sigh that was own brother too, or at any rate descended in a direct line from the furnace sigh of the lover described by the melancholy Jacques, and he sat up, bumped his head, groped round until his hand fell upon a door-knob, opened the door, and looked out into the blousy emptiness of the ship's cabin proper whose gloomy confines were made visible only by the rays of a dingy and smoky lamp swinging violently in gimbals from a deck beam. Kirkwood's clothing, now rough-dried and warped wretchedly out of shape, had been thrown carelessly on a transom near the door. He got up, collected them, and, returning to his berth, dressed at leisure, thinking heavily, disgruntled, in a humor as evil as the aftertaste of a bad brandy in his mouth. When dressed, he went out into the cabin, closing the door upon his berth, and, for lack of anything better to do, seated himself on the thwart ship's transom, against the forward bulkhead, behind the table. Above his head, a chronometer ticked steadily and loudly, and, being consulted, told him that the time of day was twenty minutes to four, which meant that he had slept away some eighteen or twenty hours. That was a solid spell of a rest, when he came to think of it, even allowing that he had been unusually and pardonably fatigued when conducted to his berth, He felt stronger now, and bright enough, and enormously hungry into the bargain. Abstractedly, heedless of the fact that his tobacco would be water-soaked and ruined, he fumbled in his pockets for pipe and pouch, thinking to soothe the pangs of hunger against breakfast time, which was probably two hours and a quarter ahead, but his pockets were empty, every one of them. He assimilated this discovery in patience and cast an eye about the room to locate, if possible, the missing property. But naught of his was visible, so he rose and began a more painstaking search. The cabin was at once tiny, low ceiled and depressingly gloomy. Its furniture consisted entirely in a chair or two, supplementing the transoms and lockers as resting places, and a center table covered with a cloth of turkey red, whose original aggressiveness had been darkly moderated by libations of liquids, principally black coffee, and burnt offerings of grease and tobacco ash. Aside from the companionway to the deck, four doors opened into the room, two probably giving upon the captain's and the mate's quarters, the others on pseudo-state rooms, one of which he had just vacated, closets large enough to contain a small bunk and naught beside. The bulkheads and partitions were badly broken out with a rash of pictures from illustrated papers, mostly offensive. Kirkwood was interested to read a half-column clipping from a New York yellow journal descriptive of the antics of a drunken British sailor who had somehow found his way to the barroom of the Fifth Avenue Hotel. The paragraph, exploiting the fact that it had required four policemen, in addition to the Corps of Porters, to subdue him, was strongly underscored in red ink, and the news story wound up with the information that in police court the man had given his name as William Stranger, and cheerfully had paid a fine of ten dollars, alleging his entertainment to have been cheap at the price. While Kirkwood was employed in perusing the illuminating anecdote, eight bells sounded, and, from the commotion overhead, the watch changed. A little later, the companionway door slammed open and shut, and Captain Stryker, or Stranger, whichever you please, fell down, rather than descended, the steps. Without attention to the American, he rolled into the mate's room and roused that personage. Kirkwood heard that the name of the second in command was Obbs, as well as that he occupied the starboard stateroom aft. After a brief exchange of comment and instruction, Mr. Obbs appeared in the shape of a walking pillar of oilskins capped by a sou'wester and went on deck. Stryker followed him out of the stateroom shed his own oilers in a clammy heap upon the floor opened a locker from which he brought forth a bottle and a dirty glass and turning toward the table for the first time became sensible of kirkwood's presence oh there you are eh little bright eyes he exclaimed with surprised animation good morning captain stryker said kirkwood rising i want to tell you but stryker waved one great red paw impatiently with the effect of sweeping aside and casting into the discard kirkwood's intended speech of thanks nor would he hear him further did you ave a nice little nap he interrupted come up bright and smilin eh now i guess the emphasis made it clear that the captain believed himself to be employing in americanism and so successful was he in his own esteem that he could not resist the temptation to improve upon the imitation. Now I guess you're about right ready. ye to have a drink, sonny. No, thank you, said Kirkwood, smiling tolerantly. I've got any amount of appetite have you now? Stryker dropped his mimicry and glanced at the clock. Breakfast, he announced, will be served in the mine dining saloon at eight AM. Passengers is requested not to be light at table. Depositing the bottle on the said table, the captain searched until he found another glass for Kirkwood and sat down. "'Do you good?' he insinuated, pushing the bottle gently over. "'No, thank you,' reiterated Kirkwood shortly, a little annoyed. Stryker seized his own glass, poured out a strong man's dose of the fiery concoction, gulped it down, and sighed. Then, with a glance at the Americans' woe-begone countenance, Kirkwood was contemplating a four-hour wait for breakfast, and consequently, looking as if he had lost his last friend, the captain bent over, placing both hands, palm down before him, and whacking his head earnestly. "'Please,' he implored, "'please don't let me interrupt,' and filled his pipe, pretending a pensive detachment from his company. The fumes of burning shag sharpened the tooth of desire. Kirkwood stood it as long as he could, then surrendered with an, "'If you've got any more of that tobacco, Captain, I'd be glad of a pipe.' An intensely contemplative expression crept into the Captain's small blue eyes. "'I only got one other piper of this ere backy,' he announced at length, "'and I can't get no more till I gets it home. "'I simply couldn't part with it under arf a quid.' Kirkwood settled back with the hopeless lift of his shoulders. Abstractedly, Stryker puffed the smoke his way until he could endure the deprivation no longer. "'I had about ten shillings in my pocket when I came aboard, Captain, and a few other articles.' "'Oh, yes, so you add. Now you mention it.' Stryker rose, ambled into his room, and returned with Kirkwood's possessions and a fresh paper of shag. While the young man was tastily filling, lighting, and inhaling the first strangling but delectable whiff, the captain solemnly counted into his own palm all the loose change, except three large pennies. The latter he shoved over to Kirkwood, in company with a miscellaneous assortment of articles, which the American picked up, piece by piece, and began to bestow upon his clothing. When through, he sat back, troubled and disgusted. Stryker met his regard blandly. "'Anything I can do?' he inquired in suave concern. "'Why, there was a black pearl scarf-pin. "'Why don't you remember? "'You gave that to me. "'Count of me avensived sived your life. "'Twas me throwed you that line, you know.' "'Oh,' commented Kirkwood briefly. "'The pin had been among the most valuable and cherished of his belongings.' "'Yes,' nodded the captain in reminiscence. "'You don't remember?' "'likely twas the brandy singin' in your head. "'You pushes it into my ands, "'almost weepin' you was, "'and says, says you, striker, you says, "'tike this in triflin' token "'of my gratitude. "'I wouldn't insult you, you says, "'by hofferin' you money, "'but this I can insist on your acceptin', "'and no refusal, says you.' "'Oh,' repeated Kirkwood, if I for an instant thought you wasn't sober when you done it, but no, you're a gent if there ever was one, and I'm not the man to offend you." Oh, indeed. The captain let the implication pass, perhaps on the consideration that he could afford to ignore it, and said no more. The pause held for several minutes, Kirkwood, having fallen into a mood of grave distraction, Finally, Captain Stryker thoughtfully measured out a second drink, limited only by the capacity of the tumbler, engulfed it noisily, and got up. "'Guess I'll be turning in,' he volunteered affably, yawning and stretching. "'I was about to ask you to do me a service,' began Kirkwood. "'Yes?' with a rising inflection of mockery. Kirkwood quietly produced his cigar case, a gold matchbox, gold card case, and slipped a signet ring from his finger. "'Will you buy these?' he asked. "'Or will you lend me five pounds and hold them as security?' Stryker examined the collection with exaggerated interest, strongly tinctured with mistrust. "'I'll buy them,' he offered eventually, looking up. "'That's kind of you.' Ow, oh, they ain't much use to me, but Bill Stryker's allus willin' to accommodate a friend.' four quid, you said? Five. They ain't worth over four to me. Very well, make it four, Kirkwood assented contemptuously. The captain swept the articles into one capacious fist, pivoted on one heel at the peril of his neck, and lumbered unsteadily off to his room. Pausing at the door, he turned back in inquiry. I say... "'How did you come to get the impression "'there was a party named Almanac aboard this vessel?' "'Calendar. "'Avid your own why,' Stryker conceded gracefully. "'There isn't, is there?' "'You erred me.' "'Then,' said Kirkwood sweetly, "'I'm sure you wouldn't be interested.' "'The captain pondered this at leisure. "'You seemed pretty keen about seeing him,' "'he remarked conclusively. "'I was.' Seems to me I did ear the nime somewheres afore. The captain appeared to rustle with an obdurate memory. Ow! Oh, he triumphed. I know. He was a chap up Manchester. Why, keeper in a lunatic asylum. He was. That your party? No," said Kirkwood wearily. "I didn't know, but MAYBE T'WAS. Excuse me," thought as ow maybe you'd escaped from his tender care. BUT FINDING THE WORLD COLD CHANGED YOUR MIND AND WANTED TO GO BACK. WITHOUT WAITING FOR A REPLY, HE LURCHED INTO HIS ROOM AND BANGED THE DOOR, TOO. KIRKWOOD, DIVIDED BETWEEN AMUSEMENT AND IRRITATION, HEARD HIM STUMBLING ABOUT FOR SOME TIME, AND THEN A HUSH FELL, GRATEFUL ENOUGH WHILE IT LASTED, WHICH WAS NOT LONG for no sooner did the captain sleep than a penetrating snore added itself into the cacophony of waves and wind and tortured ship. Kirkwood, comforted at first by the blessed tobacco, lapsed insensibly into dreary meditations. Coming after the swift movement and sustained excitement of the eighteen hours preceding his long sleep, the monotony of shipboard confinement seemed irksome to a maddening degree there was absolutely nothing he could discover to occupy his mind if there were books aboard none was in evidence beyond the report of mr stranger's manhattan nights entertainment the walls were devoid of reading matter and a round of the picture gallery proved a diversion weariful enough when not purely revolting Wherefore, Mr. Kirkwood stretched himself out on the transom, and smoked, and reviewed his adventures in detail and seriatum, and was by turns indignant, sore, anxious on his own account, as well as on Dorothy's, and out of all patience with himself. Mystified, he remained throughout, and the edge of his curiosity held as keen as ever, you may believe. Consistently, the affair presented itself to his fancy in the guise of a puzzle picture which, though you study it ever so diligently, remains incomprehensible until by chance you view it from an unexpected angle when it reveals itself intelligibly. It had not yet been his good fortune to see it from the right viewpoint. To hold the metaphor, he walked endless circles round it, patiently seeking, but never failing to find the proper perspective. Each incident, however insignificant, in connection with it, he handled over and over, examining its every facet, bright or dull, as an expert might inspect a clever imitation of a diamond, and, like a perfect imitation, it defied analysis. Of one or two things he was convinced, for one, that Stryker was a liar, worthy of classification with Calendar and Mrs. Hallam. Kirkwood had not only the testimony of his sense to assure him that the ship's name, Alethea, not a common one by the by had been mentioned by both calendar and mulready during their altercation on bermondsey old stairs but he had the confirmatory testimony of the sleepy water man william who had directed old bob and young william to the anchorage off bow creek that there should have been two vessels of the same unusual name at one and the same time in the Port of London was a coincidence too preposterous altogether to find place in his calculations. His second impregnable conclusion was that those whom he sought hard boarded the Althea, but had left her before she tripped her anchor. That they were not stowed away aboard her seemed unquestionable the brigantine was hardly large enough for the presence of three persons aboard her to be long kept a secret from an inquisitive fourth unless indeed they lay in hiding in the hold for which once the ship got under way there could be scant excuse and kirkwood did not believe himself a person of sufficient importance in calendar's eyes to make that worthy endure the discomforts of a tween decks imprisonment throughout the voyage even to escape recognition with every second then, he was travelling farther from her to whose aid he had rushed, impelled by motives so hot-headed, so innately chivalric, so unthinkingly gallant, so exceptionally idiotic. Idiot! Kirkwood groaned with despair of his inability to fathom the abyss of his self-contempt. There seemed to be positively no excuse for him. Stryker had befriended him indeed, had he permitted him to drown yet he had acted for the best as he saw it the fault lay in himself an admirable fault that of harbouring and nurturing generous and compassionate instincts but of course kirkwood couldn't see it that way what else could i do he defended himself against the indictment of common sense i couldn't leave her to the mercies of that set of rogues and heaven knows i was given every reason to believe she would be aboard this ship Why, she herself told me that she was sailing. Heaven knew, too, that this folly of his had cost him a pretty penny, first and last. His watch was gone beyond recovery. His homeward passage forfeited. He no longer harbored illusions as to the steamship company presenting him with another berth in lieu of that called for by that water-soaked slip of paper then in his pocket, courtesy of Stryker. He had sold for a pittance, a tithe of its value, his personal jewellery, and had spent every penny he could call his own. With the money Stryker was to give him, he would be able to get back to London and his third-rate hostelry, but not without enough over to pay that one week's room rent, or Oh, the devil, he groaned, head in hands. The future loomed wrapped in unspeakable darkness, lightened by no least ray of hope, it had been bad enough to lose a comfortable living through a gigantic convulsion of nature but to think that he had lost all else through his own egregious folly to find himself reduced to the kennels so care found him again in those weary hours came and sat by his side slipping a grisly hand in his and tightening its grip until he could have cried out with the torment of it the while whispering insidiously subtle evil things in his ear and he had not even hoped to comfort him. At any previous stage he had been able to distill a sort of bittersweet satisfaction from the thought that he was suffering for the love of his life. But now, now Dorothy was lost, gone like the glamour of romance in the searching light of day. Stryker, emerging from his room for breakfast, found the passenger with a hostile look in his eye and a jaw set in ugly fashion. His eyes, too, were the abiding place of smoldering devils, and the captain, recognizing them, considerately forbore to stir them up with any untimely pleasantries. To be sure, he was autocrat in his own ship, and Kirkwood's standing aboard was nil, but then there was just enough yellow in the complexion of Stryker's soul to incline him to sidestep trouble whenever feasible, and, besides, he entertained dark suspicions of his guest suspicions he scarce dared voice even to his inmost heart the morning meal therefore passed off in constrained silence the captain ate voraciously and vociferously pushing back his chair and went on deck to relieve the mate the latter a stunted little cockney with a wizened countenance and a mind as foul as his tongue got small change of his attempts to engage the passenger in conversation on topics that he considered fit for discussion after the sixth or eighth snubbing, he rose in dudgeon, discharged a poisonous bit of insolence, and retired to his berth, leaving Kirkwood to finish his breakfast in peace, which the latter did literally, to the last visible scrap of food and the ultimate drop of coffee, poor as both were in quality. To the tune of a moderating wind, the morning wearied away, Kirkwood went on deck once, for distraction from the intolerable monotony of it all, got a sound drenching of spray, with a glimpse of a dark line on the eastern horizon which he understood to be the low littoral of Holland, and was glad to dodge below once more and dry himself. He had the pleasure of the mate's company at dinner, the captain remaining on deck until Hobbs had finished and gone up to relieve him, and by that time Kirkwood likewise was through. Stryker blew down with a blustery show of cheer. "'Well, well, my little man,' it happened that he topped Kirkwood's stature by at least five inches, "'enjoyin' your sea trip?' "'About as much as you'd expect,' snapped Kirkwood. "'Ow!' the captain began to shovel food into his face. "'The author regrets he has, at his command, no more delicate expression that is literal and illustrative.' Kirkwood watched him, fascinated with suspense. It seemed impossible that the man could continue so to employ his knife without cutting his throat from the inside, but years of such manipulation had made him expert, and his guest, keenly disappointed, at length ceased to hope. Between gobbles, Stryker eyed him furtively. "'Treat you all right?' he demanded abruptly. Kirkwood started out of a brown study. "'What? Who? Why, I suppose I ought to be—' "'Indeed, I am grateful,' he asserted. "'Certainly, you saved my life, and—' "'Ow! I don't mean that!' Stryker gathered the imputation into his paw and flung it disdainfully to the four winds of heaven. "'Bless your art! You're welcome. I wouldn't let no dog drowned, if I could help it.' "'No,' he declared, "'nor a lunatic neither.' He thrust his plate away and shifted sidewise in his chair. "'I was just wonderin', he pursued, picking his teeth meditatively with a penknife, "'how they feed you in them asylums. "'I've never been inside one myself. "'It's only natural I'd be curious. "'There was one of them institutions near where I was born. "'Birmingham, that is. "'I used to see the loonies playin' in the grounds. "'I remember just as well. "'One of them and me struck up quite an acquaintance.' "'Naturally, he'd take to you on sight. "'Ow! "'Strange how we it it off, eh? "'You might me think of him. "'Young chap, he was. "'The livin' spittin' image of you. "'It don't matter, does it? "'You're the same man?' "'Oh, go to the devil!' "'Naughty!' said the captain, serenely, "'wagging a reproving forefinger. "'Bad, naughty word. "'You'll be sorry when you find out what it means.' "'only E was always planning to run away "'and drowned hisself. "'He wore the joke threadbare, even to his own taste, "'and in the end got heavily to his feet, "'starting for the companionway. "'Land you this afternoon,' he remarked casually. "'Come three o'clock or thereabouts. "'Perhaps later. "'I don't know, though as I ought to let you loose.' "'Kirkwood made no answer. "'Chuckling, Stryker went on deck.' In the course of an hour, the American followed him. Wind and sea alike had gone down wonderfully since daybreak, a circumstance undoubtedly in great part due to the fact that they had won in under the lee of the mainland and were traversing shallower waters. On either hand, like mist upon the horizon, lay a streak of grey, a shade darker than the grey of the waters. The Alethea was within the wide jaws of the western Scheldt. As for the wind, it had shifted several points to the northwards. The brigantine had it abeam, and was lying down to it and racing to port with slanting deck and singing cordage. Kirkwood approached the captain, who, acting as his own pilot, was standing by the wheel and barking sharp orders to the helmsman. "'Have you a Bradshaw on board?' asked the young man. "'Steady!' this to the man at the wheel, then to Kirkwood. What's that, Milad? Kirkwood repeated his question. Stryker eyed him suspiciously for a thought. What do you want it for? I want to see when I can get a boat back to England. Hm Yes, you'll find a Bradshaw in the port locker, near the foreign bulkhead. Run along now and ply. And mind, you don't go tearin' out the pyges to Mike Piper boatses to go sailin' in Kirkwood went below. Like its adjacent rooms, the cabin was untenanted, the watch was the mate's, and Stryker a martinet. Kirkwood found the designated locker, and, opening it, saw first to his hand the familiar bulky red volume with its red garter. Taking it out, he carried it to a chair near the companionway for a better reading light, the skylight being still battened down. The strap removed, the book opened easily, as if by force of habit, at the precise table he had wished to consult. Some previous client had left a marker between the pages, and not an ordinary bookmark, by any manner of means. Kirkwood gave utterance to a little gasp of amazement, and instinctively glanced up at the companionway to see if he were observed. He was not but for safety's sake he moved farther back into the cabin and out of the range of vision of anyone on deck-a precaution which was almost immediately justified by the clumping of heavy feet upon the steps as stryker descended in pursuit of the ever-essential drink find it he demanded staring blindly his eyes not yet focused to the change from light to gloom at the young man who was sitting with the guide open on his knees a tightly clenched fist resting on the transom at either side of him in reply he received a monosyllabic affirmative kirkwood did not look up you must be a howl commented the captain making for the seductive locker a what a howl reading that fine print there in the dark why don't you go over to the light i'll ave to ave them shutters taken off the winders This was Stryker's amiable figure of speech, frequently employed to indicate the coverings of the skylight. "'I'm all right,' Kirkwood went on, studying the book. Stryker swigged off his rum and wiped his lips with the back of a red paw, hesitating a moment to watch his guest. "'Mike's it seem more ome like for you, I expect,' he observed. "'What do you mean?' "'Why, Bradshaw's first cousin to a halmanac, ain't he?' "'Can get one, take de other. "'Next best thing. "'Sorry, I didn't think of it sooner. "'Like my passengers to feel comfy. "'Now, don't you go traipsin' off to gay Paris "'and squanderin' what money you got left. "'You ear?' "'By the way, Captain,' Kirkwood looked up at this, "'but Stryker was already halfway up the companion. "'Cautiously, the American opened his right fist "'and held to the light that which had been concealed, "'close wadded in his grasp.' a square of sheer linen edged with lace crumpled but spotless and diffusing in the unwholesome den a faint intangible fragrance the veriest wraith of that elusive perfume which he would never again inhale without instantly recalling that night ride through london in the intimacy of a cab he closed his eyes and saw her again as clearly as though she stood before him hair of gold massed above the forehead of snow curling in adorable tendrils at the nape of her neck, lips like scarlet splashed upon the immaculate whiteness of her skin, head poised audaciously in its spirited, youthful allure, dark eyes smiling the last trace sadly beneath the level brows. Unquestionably, the handkerchief was hers. If proof other than the assurance of his heart were requisite, he had it in the initial delicately embroidered in one corner a D, for Dorothy. He looked again to make sure, then hastily folded up the treasure trove and slipped it into a breast pocket of his coat. No, I am not sure that it was not the left-hand pocket. Quivering with excitement, he bent again over the book and studied it intently. After all, he had not been wrong. He could assert now, without fear of refutation, that Stryker had lied." some one had wielded an industrious pencil on the page it was taken as a whole fruitful of clues its very heading was illuminating london to vlissingen flushing and breda which happened to be the quickest and most direct route between london and antwerp beneath it in the second column from the right the pencil had put a check-mark against queensborough d e p eleven a ten and now he saw it clearly, dolt that he had been not to have divined it ere this. The Alethea had run into Queensborough, landing her passengers there, that they might make connection with the 1110 morning boat for flushing, the very side-wheel steamer, doubtless, which he had noticed beating out in the teeth of the gale just after the brigantine had picked him up. Had he not received the passing impression that the Alethea, when first he caught sight of her, might have been coming out of the medway, on whose eastern shore is situate, Queensborough Pier? Had not Miss Hallam, going upon he knew not what information or belief, been bound for Queensborough, would design there to intercept the fugitives? Kirkwood chuckled to recall how, all unwittingly, he had been the means of diverting from her chosen course that acute and resourceful lady, then again turned his attention to the tables. A third check had been placed against the train for Amsterdam, scheduled to leave Antwerp at 6.32 p.m. Momentarily, his heart misgave him. When he saw this, in fear lest Calendar and Dorothy should have gone on from Antwerp the previous evening. But then he rallied, discovering that the boat train from Flushing did not arrive at Antwerp till after ten at night, and there was no later train thence for Amsterdam. Were the latter truly their proposed destination, they would have stayed overnight, and be leaving that very evening on the 6.32. On the other hand, why should they wait for the latest train, rather than proceed by the first available in the morning? Why but because Calendar and Mulready were to wait for Stryker to join them on the Alethea. Very well, then. If the wind held, and Stryker knew his business, there would be another passenger on that train, in addition to the Calendar party. Making mental note of the fact that the boat train for Flushing and London was scheduled to leave Antwerp daily at 8.21 p.m., Kirkwood rustled the leaves to find out whether or not other tours had been planned, found evidences of none, and carefully restored the guide to the locker, lest inadvertently the captain should pick it up and see what Kirkwood had seen an hour later he went on deck the skies had blown clear and the brigantine was well in land-bound waters and still footing a rattling pace the river banks had narrowed until beyond the dykes to right and left the countryside stretched wide and flat a plain of living green embroidered with winding roads and quaint old-world hamlets whose red roofs shone like dull fire between the dark green foliage of dwarfed firs Down with the Scheldt's grey shimmering flood were drifting little companies of barges, sturdy and snug both fore and aft, tough tanned sails burning in the afternoon sunlight. A long string of canal boats, potted plants flowering saucily in their neatly curtained windows, proprietors expansively smoking on deck in the bosoms of their very large families, was being mothered upstream by two funny clucking tugs. Behind the brigantine, a travel-worn Atlantic liner was scolding itself hoarse about the right of way. Outward bound, empty cattle boats, rough and rusty, were swaggering down to the sea, with the careless, independent, thumbs-in-arm-holes air of so many navies off the job. And then, lifting suddenly above the level far-off skyline, there appeared a very miracle of beauty the delicate tracery of the great cathedral spire of frozen lace, glowing like a thing of spun gold, set against the sapphire velvet of the horizon. Antwerp was in sight. A troublesome care stirring in his mind, Kirkwood looked round the deck, but Stryker was very busy, entirely too preoccupied with the handling of his ship to be interrupted with impunity. Besides, there was plenty of time. More slowly now, the wind falling, the brigantine crept up the river, her crew alert with sheets and halyards as the devious windings of the stream rendered it necessary to trim the canvas at varying angles to catch the wind. Slowly, too, in the shadow of that Mechlin spire, the horizon grew rough and elevated, taking shape in the serrated profile of a thousand gables and a hundred towers and cross crowned steeples. Once or twice, More and more annoyed as the time of their association seemed to grow more brief, Kirkwood approached the captain, but Stryker continued to be exhaustively absorbed in the performance of his duties. Up past the dockyards, where spidery masts stood in dense groves about painted funnels, and men swarmed over huge wharves like ants over a crust of bread, up and round the final great sweeping bend of the river, the Alethea made her sober way, ever with greater slowness, until at length, in the rose-glow of a flawless evening, her windlass began to clank like a mad thing, and her anchor bit the riverbed, near the left bank, between old forts Isabel and Tete de Flandre, frowned upon from the right by the grim pile of the age-old Steen Castle. And again Kirkwood sought Stryker, his carking query ready on his lips, but the captain impatiently waved him aside. "'Don't you bother me now, me lud juke. Wait until I gets done with the custom officer. Kirkwood acceded perforce, and bided his time with what tolerance he could muster. A pluttering customs launch bustled up to the Alethea's side, discharged a fussy inspector on the brigantine's deck, and panted impatiently until he, the examination concluded without delay, was again aboard.' Stryker smirking benignly and massaging his lips with the back of his hand, followed the official on deck, nodded to Kirkwood an intimation that he was prepared to accord him an audience, and strolled forward to the waist. The American, mastering his resentment, meekly followed one cannot well afford to be haughty when one is asking favors. advancing to the rail, the captain whistled in one of the river boats, then, while the waterman waited faced his passenger. "'Now, your royal highness, what can I do for you afore you goes ashore?' "'I think you must have forgotten,' said Kirkwood quietly. "'I hate to trouble you, but there's that matter of four pounds.' Stryker's face was expressive, only of mystified vacuity. Four quid? I don't know as I know just what you means. You agreed to advance me four pounds on those things of mine.' "'Oh!' illumination overspread the hollow-jowled countenance. Stryker smiled cheerfully. "'Garn with you,' he chuckled. "'You will have your little jokes, won't you now? I declare I never see a loony with such affectionate, pliful wise." Kirkwood's eyes narrowed. "'Stryker,' he said steadily, "'give me the four pounds and let's have no more nonsense, or else hand over my things at once.' "'Daffy!' "'Stryker told Vacancy, with conviction. Lor love me if I sees how he ever ad sense enough to escape." "'Why, your majesty,' and he bowed, ironic, "'I have given you your quid.' "'Just about as much as I gave you that pro-pin,' retorted Kirkwood hotly. "'What the devil do you mean? "'Why, your ludship, four pounds just pies your passage.' "'I thought you understood.' "'My passage. But I can come across by steamer for thirty shillings, first class.' "'Ah, but them steamers. Tricky they is, and unsife.' "'No, your grice. The W. Stryker packet-line limited, London to Antwerp, charges four pounds per passage, and no reduction for return fare.' Stunned by his effrontery, Kirkwood stared in silence. "'Any compliance?' "'continued the captain, looking over Kirkwood's head, "'must be lied afore the board of directors "'in writing not more'n thirty days after.' "'You damned scoundrel,' interpolated Kirkwood thoughtfully. "'Stryker's mouth closed with a snap. "'His features froze in a cast of wrath. "'Cold rage glinted in his small blue eyes. "'Why,' he bellowed, "'you bloomin' lunatic, D'ye think you can say that to Bill Stryker on his own wessel?' He hesitated a moment, then launched a heavy fist at Kirkwood's face. Unsurprised, the young man sidestepped, caught the hard, bony wrist as the captain lurched by, following his wasted blow, and with a dexterous twist laid him flat on his back with a sounding thump upon the deck. And, as the infuriated scamp rose, which he did with a bound that placed him on his feet and in defensive posture, as though the deck had been a springboard, Kirkwood leaped back, seized a capstan bar, and faced him with a challenge. "'Stand clear, striker,' he warned the man tensely, himself livid with rage. "'If you move a step closer, I swear I'll knock the head off your shoulders. "'Not another inch, you contemptible whelp, or I'll brain you.' That's better. He continued as the captain, caving, dropped his fists and moved uneasily back. Now, give that boatman money for tying me ashore. Yes, I'm going, and if we ever meet again, take the other side of the way, Stryker. Without response, a grim smile wreathed his thin, hard lips. Stryker thrust one hand into his pocket and, withdrawing a coin, tossed it to the waiting waterman whereupon Kirkwood, backed warily to the rail, abandoned the captain's bar, and dropped over the side. Nodding to the boatman, the Steen landing, quickly, he said in French. Stryker, recovering, advanced to the rail, and waved him a derisive bon voyage. by bye, your excellency. I hopes it may soon be my pleasure to meet you again. You've been a real privilege to know. I've henjoyed your company, something immense.' Don't know as I ever met such a rippin'. I, number one, all round entertainin' ass afore. He stumbled nervously about his clothing, brought to light a rag of cotton, much the worse for service, and ostentatiously wiped from the corner of each eye tears of grief at parting. Then, as the boat swung toward the farther shore, Kirkwood's back was to the brigantine, "'and he was little tempted to turn and invite fresh shafts of ridicule. "'Rapidly, as he was ferried across the busy Scheldt, "'the white blaze of his passion cooled, "'by the biting irony of his estate, ate corrosive into his soul. hollow eyed he glared vacantly into space, "'pale lips unmoving, his features wasted with despair. "'They came to the landing stage and swung broadside on mechanically the american got up and disembarked as heedless of time and place he moved up the quai to the gangway and so gained the esplanade where pausing he thrust a trembling hand into his trouser pocket the hand reappeared displaying in its outspread palm three big round brown british pennies staring down at them kirkwood's lips moved bedrock he whispered huskily End of chapter 12. Recording by William Tomko.